0: Welcome to the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. End of Ice and Fire 4, The Battle of Winterfell. Hey everyone, LML here, back from my long break to talk about the ending of HBO's Game of Thrones, and what it means for George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. In particular, we'll be discussing what George's version of a final Battle of Winterfell against the Others might look like. This video is brought to you by my Patreon supporters, and please visit LuciferMeansLightBringer.com for the links to our Patreon campaign, the matching text to this video, and all things mythical astronomy. Now, let's cast our minds back to Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 3, about an hour and 15 minutes in. The setting is the Winterfell Godswood. The piano music is playing slowly, and all seems lost for our heroes as the Godswood fills with whites and white walkers who surround Bran and the Heart Tree. Jon and Daenerys are pinned down elsewhere by enemies. We aren't sure where the dragons are, and Bran's last defender, Theon, has died upon the icy sickle of the Night King, who now walks toward Bran in that slow and menacing way that all supervillains apparently learn in supervillain school. So, right at this moment, things were looking pretty good for my main end device and fire theory, which predicted that burning the Weirwoods would be a key element in defeating the Night King and the White Walkers, and that Bran would probably have to sacrifice himself to pull it off. I have to say, right at this moment, I was ready for Drogon to swoop down out of the sky and set the tree, the Night King, and Bran on fire, and I was thinking that this time, Drogon's fire might work on the Night King because of the Weirwood element, or because of something Bran does. Instead, the decidedly wingless Arya Stark, certified badass TM, swooped down out of the air and stabbed Night King in the belly, as we all know. And let me just say, although Arya's space jam leap seemed a bit comical for the setting, Arya is definitely a certified badass TM, with the street cred to kill White Walkers, and it was certainly exciting in the moment. Even then, I still maintained hope for my theory. Perhaps this was only the destruction of the Night King's physical body, and that he would be banished to the frozen part of the Weirwood Net Astral Plane. If so, he'd need to be confronted there, perhaps, and that was where we'd get the burning of the frozen Weirwood tree where the Night King was first created. That was another possibility that we discussed in the first three End of Ice and Fire videos, a scenario where Night King's physical body is destroyed, but his spirit survives on inside the Weirwood Net Astral Plane. And with three episodes to go, it even seemed like they had time to do it. Of course, I didn't know that the dark Danny turn, John kills Danny thing was coming as an alternate climax. And of course, I didn't think that that really could be the end of the Night King and the White Walker threat. So, about that. Let's all have a good cry for my theory, huh? Boo hoo. Wah wah. The sound of the world's smallest violin playing the reins of Castamere. The sound of Arya Stark slicing open the throat of my theory with a cat's ball blade. So sad. So sad. I'll be okay, though, with time and healing and self-care. But of course, there is widespread dissatisfaction with certain elements of the ending. First among them being the stunning reality that the show version of the White Walkers turned out to be just the sort of mindless ice demons that we all said the others could never be. Turns out, you don't need to understand anything about them, other than you have to stick them with the pointy end of a Valyrian steel weapon. The connection between the Others and the Weirwoods, which is artfully hinted at by George R.R. R. Martin in the books of A Song of Ice and Fire from the prologue of the first book to the epilogue of the fifth, was left by the wayside in the show. Most baffling was the fact that they seemed to introduce the weirwood White Walker connection as important when they showed us that the Children of the Forest were actually responsible for creating the White Walkers. They did this, of course, by transforming a human man into the Night King with magic and dragonglass while he was tied to a Weirwood tree. This was treated as a huge reveal, and seemed like one, but in the end, we didn't actually need to know any of that to defeat the Night King. We just had to stab him with Valerian steel, which is the same solution Jon had already found for defeating White Walkers at Hardhome many seasons ago. Bran's revelations about the connection between the White Walkers and the Weirwoods and the Children of the Forest were interesting, but altogether irrelevant to the end game. So too for the very exciting carvings in the caverns on Dragonstone. They depicted ancient scenes of the Children of the Forest and the First Men banding together to fight the White Walkers. But none of this ended up mattering. They did mine a bunch of dragonglass at Dragonstone, but in the end what defeated the White Walker threat was Valyrian steel, which was only invented a few centuries ago in Valyria. The help of the Children of the Forest was not needed, and the carvings ended up functioning only as a plot device to help Jon convince Danny to join him. And to drive me crazy thinking the show was using a bunch of mythical astronomy, which it wasn't, okay. In all seriousness, one might ask the question of why Bran even went north and became a host body for the Three-Eyed Raven hive mind to begin with. Why did he sacrifice Jojen and Hodor, and his friendship with Mira and his humanity, and his wolf Summer, all to gain the knowledge of the history of Westeros? And the only thing he really did with all that knowledge of any consequence was to reveal the truth of R plus L equals J, which was itself only used to cause political strife between John and Danny, and really meant nothing for the magical, defeating the White Walkers, prince-that-was-promised plotlines. That's a little underwhelming, to say the least. But we aren't here to cry, oh no, oh no. What we are here to do is something a lot more fun. We're here to talk about what George R. R. Martin might do with some of these same exciting plot elements when he writes his version of these key endgame scenes. Mythical Astronomy has always been focused on the books, so while I do delve into the show once in a while, what most of you fine folk who listen to this program are probably thinking about is the same thing that I am. What does all this stuff mean for the book endings? One of the important things to remember is that the show has a consistent track record of simplifying the magical elements of the original story. That's understandable most of the time and frustrating some of the time, but it's what they have consistently done, and it's the first thing to think about when we speculate on what George might do differently. I always like to use John's resurrection as a great example of this. On the show, Melisandre prays a haunting prayer in High Valyrian, watches John's hair, leaves the room, and then John wakes up from the dead. In the books, John's spirit will almost surely reside in his aptly named wolf, Ghost, for a few days before being transferred back to his body somehow, which will need to be resurrected. Likely with something a bit stronger than prayer and salon care, although I do like salon care. In fact, John isn't even a skin changer on the show, and actually none of the Stark children are, besides Bran, whereas in the books, they are all skin changers. That's another good example of what I'm talking about with the show, simplifying the magical elements of the original story. So with all this in mind, when we look at the Battle of Winterfell in Episode 3 of Season 8 and consider the idea of having all the most magical elements of the story in one place, White Walkers, Dragons, Weirwood Trees, Jon and Danny, and Bran, Dragonglass and Valyrian Steel and those cool White Walker ice spears, well, we ought to think about what kinds of exciting things George might do when he writes his version of the Battle of Winterfell. We should probably expect George's version to be similar in a lot of the broad strokes, but a lot more developed, and with more magic, to put it bluntly. We already know a lot of this will be different. Dave and Dan, the HBO showrunners, have said it was their choice to give Arya the, quote, kill shot, which makes that a show-only detail. And besides, there isn't even any sort of equivalent Night's King figure in the books, anyway, at least not yet. There isn't a whited dragon in the books either, though I think it's in the realm of possibility, as is some sort of Night King figure stepping forward in the books. I've got my eyes on Euron, as you might expect, especially the notion of Euron riding Viserion. And wouldn't that be a bit different than the show? Video forthcoming. What I do think we can bank on is a battle between the Others and the forces of the living at Winterfell. This could be the final battle against the Others, as it is on the show, or perhaps the Others will make it further south, as hinted at in Danny's dream of fighting the Battle of the Trident on Dragonback against enemies armored in ice. Either way, this battle of Winterfell against the Others is surely coming, and I'd be very surprised if Danny and Jon and their dragons, and Bran with his weirwood knowledge, weren't there to meet the White Walkers. This presumes a couple of things will work out in the books as they have in the show, such as Bran leaving Bloodraven's cave, which I assume he will, and Jon learning how to ride a dragon, which also seems like a pretty safe bet, and has for years. In other words, I think we will get a scene in the books along the lines of the climactic one in Episode 3 of Season 8. What will that battle look like? Well, that is exactly the question that we will seek to answer in future End of Ice and Fire videos, including this one. The plan is to explore the elements at play in this final battle one by one, comparing what the TV show did to the foreshadowing that George has laid out in the books. This exploration will culminate in a return to the Winterfell Godswood to put it all together. Now, we Mythheads already have a huge head start here, because we've been exploring and dissecting the symbolic, metaphorical, and mythical layers of A Song of Ice and Fire for several years now, and it's in those layers of the story in which we find most of the foreshadowing. By the time we're done with this series, we'll be in good shape to return to the Winterfell Godswood and make some educated guesses about what George may have planned. And won't that be fun? Now if you're a show watcher continuing on from the first three End of Ice and Fire videos to see what this idiot has to say for himself after he got everything wrong, idiot, it's okay. It's cool. It's cool. Listen, I think you'll find the rest of this series interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it may whet your appetite for reading the book series, which I highly recommend of course. Secondly, and more importantly, it will be a fun exploration of some of the ideas that the show left us with. Take King Brand, for example. What does it really mean to have the sum total of the consciousness of every three-eyed crow greenseer inhabiting the body of a boy, who then becomes king? The books have actually already given us insight into this matter, and we'll surely explore it further in the remaining books. You might be wondering what the show was teasing us with when they showed us the children of the forest creating white walkers, and the books again have things to tell us here. When the Night King stared down Jon Snow on the docks of Hardhome, raising his arms into the infamous, well-memed, come-at-me-bro pose, did you ever wonder if maybe Jon and the Night King were like, I don't know, long-lost relatives or something? How about those Bran-Night King theories, or the more sane version that speculates that Bran, and therefore Jon and all the Starks, are a descendant of the Night King? Well, the books suggest as much, and even though the show didn't explore this, you better believe that this history is important and will come into play when the book series reaches its exciting climax. So, with the rest of this first post-HBO show ending video, what I'm going to show you is that George began laying down the foreshadowing for this climactic Battle of Winterfell from the very first pages of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mentioned that the weirwood White Walker relationship is also hinted at from the start of the series, and in fact, What we really see is george laying the groundwork of a three-way relationship between the weirwoods the white walkers and the starks one that will surely reach its conclusion when the starks confront the white walkers in the winterfell godswood as i believe they will winterfell with its location atop the hot springs and its ancient ancient history has always seemed like it was obviously designed as a stronghold against the others It's the most logical place for a final battle to happen, and indeed, the foreshadowing of this begins as soon as A Game of Thrones does. The infamous prologue chapter introduces us to the general threat of the White Walkers and some other symbolic goodness that we'll get to in a moment, but let's start with that second chapter of A Game of Thrones, where George introduces us to Winterfell. From the moment we first see Eddard Stark cleaning his Valyrian steel blade, Ice, in the Winterfell Godswood Pond, we've known the others were coming. Catlin knew it, as you can see here. There are darker things beyond the wall. She glanced behind her at the heart tree, the pale bark and red eyes, watching, listening, thinking its long, slow thoughts. His smile was gentle. You listen to too many of old Nan's stories. The others are as dead as the children of the forest, gone 8,000 years. Maester Lewin will tell you they never lived at all. No living man has ever seen one. Until this morning, no living man had ever seen a direwolf either, Catlin reminded him. I ought to know better than to argue with a tully, he said with a rueful smile. He slid ice back into its sheath. Catelyn is right, of course, as was Osha the Wildling when she warned Bran about the others in A Game of Thrones, and of course Bloodraven warned Bran of the White Walker threat in his famous coma dream where he looked north and north and saw the heart of winter. Not only is Catelyn's intuition right, the reader already knows that the man Ned executed that morning, Garrod, had in fact seen a White Walker. This scene is one of those obvious, oh, that thing could never happen, everything is fine quotes you often get near the beginning of a story, and it tells you, of course, that the dreaded thing will indeed come to pass. Winter is coming, and with it the White Walkers, as Jon Snow says in A Dance with Dragons. And perhaps this is the ultimate meaning of the Stark words, a warning to stay vigilant against the ever-present threat of the Others, who are basically a physical, magical incarnation of the very worst parts of winter. And they're coming. The person being warned about the others here is a Stark, armed with Valerian steel. And indeed, when the others do eventually arrive in the final book, we all expect them to be greeted by a Stark with Valerian steel. Jon Snow, who may even be Jon Stark by then, and who will have either Longclaw, or perhaps even one of the swords made from Ned's ice like Oathkeeper or Widow's Wail. In fact, the others will probably be confronted with two Starks armed with Valerian steel, as I'd expect Arya to be here for this battle too, as in the show. She might not kill a Night King with a Simone Biles-worthy feat of gymnastic prowess, but I'm sure she'll be here in the fight, and probably armed with something potent. Perhaps the cat's paw blade as in the show, or better yet, Dark Sister, the Valyrian Sword of Queen Visenya, Daemon Targaryen, and most recently, Bloodraven, who according to George, still has it up in that weirwood cave far in the north. Bran and Mira might bring it back from the cave, and perhaps Bran will give it to Arya, just as TV show Bran gave the cat's paw blade to Arya. If George really wants to give us some good wish fulfillment, perhaps we'll see Jon with Oathkeeper, and Arya with Widow's Wail, so that Ice will be returned to the hands of the Starks. Whatever happens, you can see that there are a lot of interesting possibilities here for Starks with dragon swords. by the time the others arrive. On the most basic level, the fact that Ned is polishing a giant Valyrian steel sword while Catlin speaks of the others is part of the heavy foreshadowing here. Not only are the others coming, but it seems important to have some magical dragon weapons around to fight them. Although there are no live dragons here in the scene, it'd be kind of ostentatious, slightly distracting, the importance of the role of all things dragon is represented by the presence of Valyrian steel, and by Catelyn's inner monologue about how ice had been forged in Valyria before the doom had come to the old freehold, when the ironsmiths had worked their metals with spells as well as hammers. All this dragon talk comes at us even while the scene is essentially introducing us to some of the starkiest things around. The heart tree and the concept of weirwoods in general, the direwolves, the Stark Words, Ned's cleansing ritual in the Godswood, Ned's relationships to Catelyn, John Aaron, and Robert Baratheon, and Ned and Kat's relationship to their children. Amidst all this, Ned's ice is a focal point of the scene, and the lines about it being a magic sword from a long-lost Dragonlord Empire come basically right after the description of the Heart Tree, which is like one of the most central things in the entire story. All of this makes a ton of sense as foreshadowing. George would seem to be setting up the important elements that will be here for the penultimate Battle of Winterfell. The Weirwoods, the White Walkers, Dragon Swords and Dragon Fire, and Ned's children. Sticking with that last quote from Catelyn's scene in The Godswood with Ned, there's a telling bit of foreshadowing concerning the White Walkers that is often overlooked. It's kind of glaring, actually, in retrospect. See what you think. There are darker things beyond the wall. She glanced behind her at the heart tree, the pale bark and red eyes, watching, listening, thinking it's long, slow thoughts. It's clear from the surrounding quote that Catelyn is alluding to the others when she talks about darker things beyond the wall. And she's doing it while she's looking back over her shoulder at the weirwood tree. As if weirwoods and white walkers have something to do with one another, which, spoiler alert, they do. Keep in mind that this chapter, the second in A Game of Thrones, comes hot on the heels of that Waymar Royce vs. the White Walkers prologue chapter, which is chock full of clues that indeed, the dreaded White Walkers of the Wood come from the Wood, and most likely from the Weirwood. The others in this chapter are like pale shadows that emerged from the dark of the Wood. Their milk-white flesh is hard as old bone a description that matches the whitest as bone description of the white bark of the Winterfell weirwood tree that comes only two chapters later. When Will first catches sight of pale shapes gliding through the wood in the prologue, the shadowy Other disappears from view, and in its place, the next sentence tells us that Will sees branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers, as if the Other has turned into a walking tree with hands. And in a sense, that's what I believe the Others are. When Sam Tarly kills a white walker in a storm of swords, we actually see its fingers, which are affixed to bone-white hands. So once again we think of the weirwood bark, which is almost always described as bone-white. Such as in A Dance with Dragons, where we read that the cage Mance Raider is burned in is made in part from the bone-white fingers of the weirwoods. It's not just that the others look like weirwoods. The resemblance goes both ways, as we see in A Dance with Dragons in the Vermeer Sixskins prologue chapter. We'll bounce right back to A Game of Thrones in a second, but have a quick look at what happens to this weirwood tree when the others and the army of the dead march through the wildwing village nearby. Outside, the night was white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon, while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. The others are frequently described as pale shadows and white shadows, or sometimes just shadows, including in the Game of Thrones prologue. And here the weirwood is a pale shadow. Perhaps that's just coincidence, but we also notice that the weirwood tree is armored in ice, just as the others are armored in ice. This last quote is actually from right before the Army of the Dead arrives, and when it actually does, the lines are, Below, the world had turned to ice. Fingers of frost crept slowly up the weirwood, reaching out for each other. The empty village was no longer empty. Blue-eyed shadows walked amongst the mounds of snow. Now we have icy hands crawling up the bone-white bark of the weirwood, and we can't help but think of the bone-white icy hands of the others, who are pale shadows armored in ice just like this weirwood. Appearing alongside the actual white walkers and whites, this tree seems like something of a symbolic signpost, pointing towards that White-Walker-Weirwood relationship that we've been discussing. Returning to the prologue, there is more language, suggesting the others as icy tree warriors, such as when we read that, Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there, black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. Basically, these are like icy elves here, with reflective armor that makes them blend into the wood. Because of their armor, they appear everywhere dappled with the gray-green of the trees, as if they wore green tree armor, like green men. And one even notes that dappled is the word that George uses to describe the skin of the children of the forest. Many have noticed that the speech of the children was described as sounding like the song of stones in a brook, or the wind through the leaves, or rain upon the water, according to The World of Ice and Fire, While the voice of the other in the Game of Thrones prologue was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. In other words, if you freeze the the rain-upon-the-water language of the children, you'd have scroth or whatever the language of the others is called. Along these same lines, A Dance with Dragons also tells us that the voices of the children of the forest, who are really called those who sing the Song of Earth were as pure as winter air, another subtle clue that the earth and nature magic of the children of the forest might be able to be transformed into an icy medium. My favorite clue about the children of the forest having had a hand in the creation of the Others, which won me much fame and upvotes on Reddit, yay, yay, is this line from Cotter Pike in A Storm of Swords, who is expressing skepticism about Samwell Tarly actually killing a white walker on the way back from The Fist of the First Men. Sam the Slayer, he said by way of greeting. Are you sure you stabbed another and not some child's snow knight? Some child's snow knight, huh? Ah, very clever, George. Are the others snow knights created by the children? Well, in the show, the answer is yes, kinda. The children of the forest make the Night King, and the Night King seems to be able to transform human babies into white walkers. In the books, I suspect the answer will again be yes, kinda. And that I think the creation of the Others will come down to humans gaining control of the weirdwood magic of the Children of the Forest and perverting it. Something more like that. But hey, there it is. The Others are the Snow Knights of the Children. This kind of sneaky wordplay is one of the reasons why reading A Song of Ice and Fire is so much fun, if you ask me. And gosh, I'm not even sure if I should tell you about this line from later in A Storm of Swords. From Sansa's chapter in the Frozen Eerie, where she makes this snow castle version of Winterfell- Oh, who am I kidding? I'm gonna tell you about it. What do I want with snowballs? She looked at her sad little arsenal. There's no one to throw them at. She let the ones she was making drop from her hand. I could build a snow knight instead, she thought. Or even... Sansa doesn't build a snow knight, but instead snow Castle Winterfell, which obviously means that Winterfell is made out of the bodies of others. Actually, no. What is interesting about it is the simple evocation of the snow knight language while she builds Winterfell. It's interesting on its own, but also I can't help but notice that Sansa actually has some covert Night's Queen symbolism in this chapter. And I can't help but notice the fact that as soon as the miniature Winterfell is completed, there is something of a Battle of Winterfell. Look at that, as Robin Aaron smashes down the gates of the snow castle with his toy giant. I'm a giant! Tromp, tromp, tromp! Only to have Sansa then rip its little doll head off and mount it on a little stick. Peter Baelish remarks that... If the tales be true, that's not the first giant to end up with his head on Winterfell's walls. To which Sansa replies that those are only stories. Stories they may be, but they are also foreshadowing, I would say. Of course, the TV show has already given us giants attacking Winterfell, not once, but twice. Both when Jon Snow led the Wildling army against the Boltons, and then later when whited giants fought in the army of the dead when the others attacked Winterfell. So this is very possibly a scene in which George is indeed foreshadowing the final battle of Winterfell, where those snow knights, and maybe a few giants, will surely put in an appearance. Returning to the Game of Thrones prologue, we have more links between the others, the Weirwoods, and the children. The prologue describes these White Walkers of the Wood as watchers who are faceless and silent. But fast forward two chapters to Catelyn's inner monologue as she stands before Ned Stark in the Godswood, and we read about these old gods of the Weirwood Tree to whom Ned prays. The blood of the First Men still flowed in the veins of the Starks, and his own gods were the Old Ones, the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood they shared with the vanished children of the forest. Catelyn goes on to call the Weirwoods' eyes strangely watchful, and then thinks that the only Weirwoods found outside of the North were on the Isle of Faces, where the Green Men keep their silent watch. So the Green Men, who guard Weirwoods, are silent watchers, the old gods of the weirwood with their strangely watchful eyes are also known as nameless, faceless gods of the greenwood, and the others are faceless, silent watchers, who walk the white wood, and who for all intents and purposes are nameless as well. One should also note that right before the others appeared in the A Game of Thrones prologue, Will, who had just climbed a tree, utters a prayer to the nameless gods of the wood, which works to make us think of Ned's nameless weirwood gods right as the others emerge, almost as if Will had prayed to the old gods and then the others had come in answer, tip, ravenous reader. My overall point throughout this section is that George is using the words he chooses to describe the others, the children of the forest, and the weirwoods, to encourage the reader to see them all as connected. As you can see, something is definitely up here with the bone-white weirwoods, and the bone-white white White walkers of the wood. Something is also definitely up with the Starks and their connections to the others, and that's no secret. Again, I'm only giving you the tip of the icy spear here, even just in terms of the prologue and the first chapters of A Game of Thrones, let alone the whole series. For example, have you ever noticed that at the end of the prologue, we see a man of the Night's Watch killed by the ice swords of the white walkers? And then at the beginning of the very next chapter, we see another man of the Night's Watch, killed by a sword named Ice, which is wielded not by White Walkers this time, but by Ned Stark, Lord of Winterfell. Weird, right? If the Night's Watch brothers go too far north, they face the Ice Swords of the others. And if they go too far south, they face the Ice Sword of the Starks. George shows us both of these things only pages apart, literally like three or four pages apart, right at the beginning of the story. And right alongside this, He's dropping hints that the old gods of the Weirwoods, to whom Ned prays, might have something to do with those white walkers of the wood. The next Winterfell chapter in A Game of Thrones is the one where King Robert Baratheon arrives and has a long and interesting conversation with Ned, and more wintry, otherish hints are dropped about the Starks. Robert is happy to see Ned's frozen face, and asks Ned if his people are hiding under these summer snows, which he says the others can take. Thing is, cold whites hide under the snow, so Robert's lines, taken together, could be read to suggest Ned as a man with a frozen face, who rules over an army of the dead who sleeps under the snow. Sounds like someone you know, right? Then later in A Game of Thrones, Peter Baelish taunts Ned by saying that here in the south they say you are all made of ice and melt when you ride below the neck, which makes the Starks sound unambiguously like others. Eventually, we start getting some of the names of the ancient Stark kings of winter and kings in the north interred down in the crypts, and we see names like Brandon Ice Eyes Stark and Edric Snowbeard Stark, and all the statues of the dead Starks down there have vengeful spirits and eyes of cold stone. And someone remind me what the name of the main Stark fighting protagonist is, the guy he's, I don't know, he's going to fight the others, his name is John, what was it, John Snow, that's right, John Snow. The man with an evil name, Yagrit says. Evil because it makes him sound kind of like a pro White Walker kind of guy. The Night's Watch recruits mockingly call John Lord Snow, another name that sounds like it would fit a King of the White Walkers, much like the ancient Stark title of King of Winter. Remember how we talked about the ice armor of the others? I also alluded to a dream that Daenerys has of fighting the Battle of the Trident, but against the others, and the quote there was, "...that night she dreamt that she was Rhaegar, riding to the Trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armored all in ice, but she bathed them in dragonfire, and they melted away like dew and turned the Trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. This is one of several passages foreshadowing Daenerys confronting the Others with her dragons, and we'll look at the rest of those when we get to our Danny episode in this series. The thing I want to point out now is that the ice armor is such a hallmark of the Others that it alone is enough for the reader to identify the foes in Danny's dream. Enemies wearing ice armor must be the Others. Here's where the Starks come into this. When Jon Snow has a dream foreshadowing his confrontation with the others, we see Ice Armor again, just as in Danny's dream, but it's in the wrong place. This is usually referred to as Jon's Azor Ahai dream, because he dreams of defending the wall with a burning red sword, and because he kills his love, Ygritte, just as Azor Ahai slew his love, Nissa, Nissa. Here's the passage. "'Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire,' Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. The burning red sword kind of steals the scene here, but yes, John Snow is armored in black ice. Black ice may be somewhat of a different symbol than just plain old ice, which we discuss at length in the Bloodstone Compendium podcast series, but still, Jon is armored in ice here, like an other. Lord Snow, the King of Winter, armored in ice. No, I don't think that any of this means that Jon Snow will be necessarily turned into another, although I wouldn't rule out some version of this either. The message here could be something more about fighting fire with fire, except you're fighting ice with ice. After all, frozen fire, a.k.a. obsidian, kills the ice demons. And that big black Valyrian steel sword the Starks have? It's called ice, of course. But we know it would kill White Walkers, too. So again, we'd be killing ice demons with some sort of frozen or icy weapon. This is what makes these Stark-White Walker connections so interesting. George sets them up as foes but gives them much of the same symbolism, and meanwhile he sketches out a connection between the Others and the gods the Starks worship. Jon has another dream which also confuses the Starks with the Others, or at least with the Whites. You probably recall the scene from the end of A Game of Thrones where Jon, Snow, and Ghost killed the Whited Othor in Lord Commander Mormont's chambers, saving the old bear's life and earning Jon the honor of carrying Longclaw. But when Mormont actually presents Longclaw to Jon, John recalls his nightmares of the fight against the white. Whatever demonic force moved Othor had been driven out by the flames, the twisted thing they had found in the ashes had been no more than cooked meat and charred bone. Yet in his nightmare he faced it again, and this time the burning corpse wore Lord Edard's features. It was his father's skin that burst and blackened, his father's eyes that ran liquid down his cheeks like jellied tears. John did not understand why that should be or what it might mean, but it frightened him more than he could say. To be fair, John also dreams of the Winterfell Hartree having his father's face as well, which isn't quite as bad. Taken together, both dreams make the point, though. The Starks are tied to the Weirwoods, yes, but also to the White Walkers. In fact, even though Othor is a white and not an other... I believe that George named him Othor to indicate that he is representing the Others as a whole, at least on a symbolic level. And that George has John fight him here as a foreshadowing of John's destiny of fighting the Others. Except in his dreams, the face of Othor is his father's. Just as with John's burning red sword Azor Ahai dream, this dream also contains references to Azor Ahai. Because the whited Othor has a pale moon face and John slashes at it without hesitation, scoring a deep wound. Compare that to the legend of Lightbringer, which says that Nyssa cry left a crack across the face of the moon when Lightbringer was forged. Since John seems to be some sort of incarnation of Azor Ahai reborn, it makes sense to refer to the Azor high legend when foreshadowing John's fate, and that's exactly what Martin seems to be doing in many of his dreams. The only conclusion I can draw from this is that George has a plan to bring together all the fiery Azor Ahai and dragon plot elements, and the icy White Walker elements. That, to me, has always been the importance of Jon being the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. Not the political implications, but the magical ones. It's pretty obvious that we should associate his Targaryen lineage with fire magic and dragons, and though the links between the Starks and the others are more subtle, they do exist, as you can see. Therefore, as a half-Targaryen, half-Stark... John really is set up to be the nexus point for the forces of ice and fire, hence my belief that John's magical heritage is the real point of R plus L equals J. John's recurring dreams of the Stark crypts, which seem to want to take him deeper and deeper down to the oldest levels, indicate that the culmination of John's plotline will also go right to the core of whatever dark truth lies at the heart of House Stark. And for my money, that secret is going to have to do with the origins of the Others. Now, it's no secret that good authors like to set up some of the big payoffs as early as possible. And in looking at these first few chapters of A Game of Thrones and elsewhere, the payoff I see coming is that the ancient connections between the Starks and the Weirwoods, and the others, will have to be dealt with at the climax. Most likely here in this very Winterfell godswood, and perhaps in the crypts below. Although, guys, that's really not the place to hide when the White Walkers attack. They uh, can raise the dead, I don't know if you've heard that. Anyway, despite linking the origin of the White Walkers to the Children of the Forest and the Weirwoods in a very explicit way, the TV show adaptation did not address any of these connections, but I have very little doubt that George R.R. R. Martin will. After all, the link between the Starks, the magic of the Children of the Forest, and the others goes back to the most ancient history, as we hear in the fourth brand chapter of A Game of Thrones. Yet here and there in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities— One by one, his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him, and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. And then moments later, we read that, All Bran could think of was Old Nan's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment, until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. White woods, white walkers of the wood. And to beat them, the last hero, who was probably a Stark, has to receive the aid of the children of the forest. Although there is no equivalent to the show Night King, again, at least not yet, there is a Night's King in the ancient legends of the North. In A Storm of Swords, Bran visits the dreaded knight fort on the wall, and recalls Old Nan's tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. "'And that was the fault in him,' she would add. "'For all men must know fear.' A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon, and eyes like blue stars." Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was as cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, Night's King and his corpse Queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jorman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Old Nan always finished her story by tweaking Bran's nose and saying, "'He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who can say?' Mayhaps his name was Brandon. Mayhaps he slept in this very bed, in this very room. She also says that Knight's King was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. Meaning that when the books pitted a Knight's King against a Stark, it was a brother-brother affair. And doesn't that seem like the sort of history that will come back around? Might this be the sort of history that makes Brand's access to the weirwood Net a bit more relevant to the endgame? it would make sense to me. The most obvious reason for Bran and his little company to sacrifice so much to get Bran hooked up to the Weirwood net is that he's going to learn the secrets of the White Walkers and of defeating them. And here is old Nan telling Bran that the first Night's King may have shared not only his name and his lineage, but his very Winterfell bedroom. Do you think all this White Walker stuff might be like, I don't know, an important part of Bran's plot? I think you can kind of see what happened here in terms of the show. They chose not to go down the road of a more complex resolution to the White Walker plotline that dealt with their connection to the Weirwoods and the Children of the Forest. Sorry, I'll stop complaining. And this left Bran's net knowledge mostly without a purpose. That's perhaps why his character stopped making sense, had tipped David Byrne. And that's why something seemed off about his becoming king to some people. Now, I don't want to get into King Bran just yet. That will be its own video. But after having looked at some of the book evidence of the important connections between the others, the Weirwoods and the Starks, we can at least start to see how minimizing these elements changed Bran's character and Endgame quite a bit. We can also start to see how George R.R. R. Martin's Battle of Winterfell will do a lot more to resolve these ancient, wintry connections. And we can certainly see that at the center of it all, Bran will be doing a lot more with his Weirwood magic than going away for a while. Speaking of going away for a while, thanks everyone for being patient with me while I took a little break here. So I hope you've enjoyed this video, and if you did, please like and share it. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. And if you want to see more mythical astronomy in the days to come, please consider supporting the program with a monthly Patreon commitment or a one-time PayPal donation at paypal.me slash mythicalastronomy. I'll be back very soon with videos on King Bran, Night King Euron, Daenerys and John, and more. And in the meantime, you can check out all of our back material here on the YouTube channel at lucifermeanslightbringer.com if you prefer to read, or on the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast feed. Thanks, everyone, and I'll see you again soon.